Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Working is supported by MailChimp. More than 7 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. Teams can collaborate with MailChimp to design and track newsletters or just get work done easier. MailChimp. Send better email. Find out more at MailChimp.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Working, a podcast about what people do all day. I'm David Plotz. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Craig Turk and I am a screenwriter. Where do you screenwrite? <laughs> I am uh, primarily a television writer. I'm currently an executive producer on a television show called The Good Wife, and I am also uh, developing some shows of my own. Let's focus on your Good Wife job. When does your day start? Interestingly, on all the television shows I've worked on, the morning is always exactly the same and the most important part of the day, and that is the decision about where to eat lunch. It might be a function of the fact that you will spend a lot of your day sitting around a big table staring at the same faces all the time. So the only really exciting decision that you get to make that you know will stick is uh, where do we eat. But there is a battle that most people would be hard-pressed to believe is real. On a normal day at The Good Wife, for example, the the PA as a production assistant will give us a choice of you know two places that they'll, they'll go out and take our lunch from. And... People are so unbelievably aggrieved at like 10.06 about the limitation of their choices on a hot day. Who would dare, you know, offered sushi, which doesn't travel well. We've had Mexican too much. Indian makes a writer's office smell. But normally that gets sorted. And by the time it's sorted, they actually will have brought us our breakfast. And, uh, and so there's a, there, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of food stuff going on, I'd say, for the, for the first chunk of our day. 
The bigger battle is how far can you, in good conscience, send a production assistant to get lunch? And I've worked on shows where people will say, well, look, these are, you know, production assistants is a young person who's breaking in, and they're generally very happy to do whatever you'd like them to do. And they're, they're, they're incredibly smart kids who are, who are doing something that's well beneath their, their talents. But, you know, it's, it's the, the sort of ritualistic hazing that most businesses, or a lot of businesses anyway, have. But uh, you can send them anywhere. And a lot of people say, that's fine. They like it. They love doing this. I mean, obviously, they do not love doing it. So, okay. So you've decided what's going to be lunch. You're having breakfast. It's now noon. So it's time for lunch. No. <laughs> so, what, so what then happens? How many people are in the room and what are you doing? Can I, can I tell you, this is, this, is, this is also a sad admission. And by now, people have probably turned off this podcast thinking they were going to hear about what it's like to write a TV show. Um, but by noon so maybe we order lunch by 10:30 by noon you would think people were going to starve to death we have this really beautiful writers room on the 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 Culver Studios lot and we look out on the building that was used for the you know to the facade of Terra you know and gone with the wind i mean the bay windows and leather couches it really couldn't be any nicer and people are in there and they're starting to look out the window to see if the PA's car has come back on the lot and like by noon they're furious and it says something about my job, but I don't know what. Anyway, to, to, back to the more important stuff, we have uh, seven or eight writers on The Good Wife, which is, a, which is about average for a network drama. You know, sometimes cable shows have slightly smaller staffs. And comedies sometimes will have larger staffs. I mean, like a big successful comedy show might have 25 writers. On a drama, we have a core of, you know, seven people who are all in the same room. Um, at the beginning of the year before production starts, we will get together and it feels very leisurely and it feels like what I think most people would imagine and hope that a television writer's room would be like, where you sort of sit around and you think about, okay, what do we want this next season to look like? What are the ideas that we're interested in exploring, you know, in this season? And so we talk big picture stuff, blue skying, we call it. And so we'll blue sky for a while about what could the season be about? What are interesting ideas? What are opportunities that we haven't taken advantage of? And that sort of mellows into a discussion of, well, where are our characters headed? And so we'll we'll try to break out arcs for each of the characters. Um, you know, we'll take our six or seven main characters and talk about, okay, here's where we left them at the end of last season. Here's where we'd like to get them to. And here's sort of what that evolution looks like. And we'll literally have, you know, big whiteboards, use a different color ink for every character and just, you know, talk about, you know, for instance, on The Good Wife, what do we think is going to happen to Alicia Florick over the course of the season? What would be interesting for her? And then we'll sort of go down the list with the other characters. And then you sort of start to find interesting opportunities for things that are happening to one character that impact another character. And it's it's not a very clean evolutionary process, but over a number of days or weeks, you start to really find some interesting stuff. Who, who's the person who ultimately gets the decision about what happens to everybody? That's the first part of my question. The second part is, is this uh, decision about what's going to happen made at the beginning of every year, or is there a kind of a 10-year plan for shows? Well, there is often – I mean, I'll answer the, your first question first, which is shows will have a showrunner, which is an executive producer. Some shows have multiple executive producers. Um, so, for instance, I was a showrunner on, on Private Practice, so that would have been – my decision on the good wife i am an executive producer but the guy who created the show is still there and it's really it really winds up being his decision of where you know where he thinks the the show wants to go but then we will we will sort of check that with the studio and make sure the studio is on board and check it with the network and make sure the network's on board and to some extent depending on the shows and and how involved various actors are you'll talk to the actors about it um sometimes for ideas sometimes to make sure that they're on board if you're doing something you know sort of radical with their characters on on private 
practice a couple of years ago, we did a season that revolved around a lot around the rape of a character and we needed to have her on board because it was a difficult thing to play and a lot came out of it. And so, you know, you really want buy-in from the actor, but anyway, so there is sort of one voice and that's the voice of the showrunner that, that ultimately makes a decision, but it's in consultation with, with a number of other people. Uh, do shows have plans? Yes. Shows often will be sold with, here's what the first season looks like, and here's what the second season looks like, and here's what season five looks like. Because ideally, when you sell a television show, they want to know they're going to get 100 episodes out of it and get it, you know, get to syndication. So you want an idea that's sort of, you know, that's potentially um, that rich. I don't think in the history of television has ever gone that smoothly. And I'll, I'll give you an example, which is at the beginning of the year, we sketch out. So we'll do, you know, what's the season about? Then we'll do arcs for characters and then we'll break it down to episodes and we'll have ideas for cases that we want to do things. We read in the newspaper, things that, you know, we saw on Colbert, you know, and anything that, that sort of strikes you as something that would be interesting and rich to as a takeoff point. But then you wind up, you know, people sometimes I think believe that you can just read it in a newspaper or you see it on television and it makes a good television story but it doesn't it's always a jumping off point because we'll have to take that story and twist it two or three times to make it work but anyway so we'll do big picture character arcs specific episodes and after like a month of sitting around and and doing this um, we will feel extremely pleased with ourselves and we'll feel like you know what that's 22 episodes that's a television season I've never worked on a show where we've made it past episode seven or nine without using up every bit of story that we have broken before. It's just, you know, we, we call it pulling left. These television shows eat story so incredibly fast that you can't really stay ahead of the curve. And then what happens when you have used up all the ideas for the season and you're seven episodes in? Also, are you writing, if you have 22 episodes, when are they all getting written? They're not all getting written in advance. Well, we try to stay. We'll start our our season as writers, you know, about two months to, uh, before production starts. And so, sorry, when in the year is that? Typically, writers' offices for network shows. It's now a little different because cable kind of runs all year round, and there are summer series. But for a traditional network show, the writers' offices will open sometime in May. And the production will normally start sometime in July. And so we try to get a running start at it. So we'll have ideas for, you know, what we believe is 22, what in reality is seven episodes. And we'll start getting some scripts done. So by the time production starts, you know, in a perfect world, you'd be five or six scripts into your season. And then how quickly does it catch up? Does it ever catch up to you? Yeah, it does catch up. It does catch up because we shoot television shows at a really rapid pace. So it takes anywhere from, you know, seven to nine days to shoot an episode of network television. You shoot every day of the week for 12 hours a day and the schedule doesn't stop. There are no days off between episodes. It's extraordinarily expensive to go dark, you know, to shut down production. And so once the season starts, it starts. And so you need those script pages to be shot, but you can't write them. You know, I think sometimes people think, you know, on the day of, they write them and they run them down to the set. Um, extraordinarily hard to do because, you know, the, the, the people who work on a television show and do the physical production of it need to prep, right? You need the lo- unless you're shooting on your stages, which you own, you need to find the locations and get permission and go and set up and you know people need lighting plans and props have to be produced and you know wardrobes need to be done and hair needs to be done and you need to know who's in the scene because you need to cast it and then the deals with those actors need to be done so it's a really complicated beast and so you like to stay ahead of it and i and a couple of other people there are really schedule 
oriented, you know, kinds of writers. So we like to stay a few weeks ahead, you know, directors and the people who do the physical production get a prep period of seven or eight days before their episode. But to get that script done seven or eight days before means you've had to have, you know, had four to six weeks of working on the script before that. Do you actually write sitting around with other people or do people then go off to a corner or go home and write? People go into their writing holes uh, to, to write. Again, on comedies, there's there's a lot of, you know, put a script up on a projector and people pitch on jokes and script and you're kind of revising as you go. Dramas don't really lend themselves to that because they're, the, the plots are more complicated and they're, and they're fairly dense. And so what will normally happen is we'll spend eight or ten days breaking an episode and, you know, of, of The Good Wife. So right now we happen to be on episode 607, which is the seventh episode of the sixth season. And we know what's come before. So we sort of know where we left our characters off in 606 because we were all in the room breaking that together. And we know what we want sort of the main plot to be, what we call the A plot, which is often a case. Um, and then there's a B, C, and D plot, which are the personal stories that wrap around and hopefully thread through the case. There's, a, there's also a big debate um, over do you break the case first and then fill in the personal around it? Or do you break the personal first and then fill in the case around it? And there are varying schools of thought as to what works better. But in any event, um, we will break all the stories, sort of blend them together. And on The Good Wife, we have a really specific way of doing it, which is different than a lot of shows. We just do it on note cards on a big cork board, different colored note cards for different stories on a cork board. So we spend a lot of our day, you know, sitting at a table yelling at each other about what works best and then rearranging these note cards, you know, on this cork board until you get the, you know, maybe 42 to 52 beats or scenes that make up uh, an episode. And once that's done, we'll assign a writer to go off and we'll give them in a perfect world two weeks, in a realistic world one week. As the season goes on and we start to, you know, to, to get closer and closer to production deadlines, sometimes three or four days to write it. So the writer has the all the beats. They have the 42 beats. They write that whole episode. You don't divide up the beats so that one person writes one part of it, one person writes another character. No, we don't. Um, and that's a, 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 People often ask, I think one of the biggest misconceptions about especially writing for television is people will often say, do you, like, which character do you write? Um, you know, do you write Alicia or do you write Peter? Uh, it doesn't really work like that. There aren't typically, in fact, almost never are there specialists who write one character or another. When you write a script, it's it's ideally structured in a way that's fairly complicated and fairly, you know, interesting. But it requires you to write the whole thing because scenes interrelate, and you know, you don't know where a character's coming from or or going if you haven't been sort of deep into the script. So we will assign one writer to write um, a draft of this script using the break using the, the sort of beat by beat outline that we have on the board. And then we begin a revision process where that script is, you know, read by the showrunner, the showrunner will give notes and then you revise. And then it's, it's a continual process of revision that does happen right up until, you know, often the day of shooting, we will write anywhere from, you know, we'll, we'll revise the script until it's done and you get what's called a production draft and it's on nice clean white pages and it has all the cast members and all the locations. And you think, huh, this is great. This is a, a perfect blueprint for shooting an episode of television. But then as the episode goes on, something changes before it, or you see the dailies, you know, you see the, the, the footage from the, that was shot that day and you realize a relationship is really working well. We should play more of that or it's not working well, or things just change, you know, a hurricane comes and knocks out some of your sets and you have to reset it. And so you'll do, you'll do some revised pages and then those turn a color, you know, the pages turn pink and they turn blue and they turn green. And so for any particular script at the end, you have this kind of multicolored 
beast that's been revised three or five or ten times. As a writer, you have to read every one of these drafts because things change, um, and sometimes they change in fairly dramatic ways. You know, there are things that have been written which disappear. You know, as a writer, you might think, well, no, that was, that was in there. Sometimes there are things that you talked about in the room and they were on the cards, but they don't wind up in a script. And then sometimes there are things that were in a script, but they're no longer in there because they were revised out. And sometimes they are shot and then they are dropped in editing. So it actually takes a lot of sort of focus and tracking to remember what exists. Like there, there, there are whole subplots and characters and stories that exist only in the minds of the writers who, you know, who are involved that the audience never sees. And we have to sort of be sensitive to what, you know, to what the audience has seen, not to what we've done creatively. This episode of Working is sponsored by MailChimp. More than 7 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. Teams can collaborate with MailChimp to design and track newsletters and just get work done easier. Plus, MailChimp distributes hats for cats and small dogs. You can find out more at MailChimp.com. MailChimp. Send better email. So you're a writer who's also a producer on the show. You're an executive producer on the show. Do you have to make sure of the, the, the scene this writer is planning for, we, it's way too expensive for us to make the scene or it's... It's, uh, you know, the problems that the writer might not see, which would cost you money or just be not fit. Absolutely. In fact, it was it was my first and one of my most embarrassing moments in, in television is I when I when I was a baby writer, I'd never written before. The first, you know, sort of real episode of television I wrote was for Law and Order. And I had never worked on a staff. This was a, this was a spec script that I was writing, you know, just to sort of get my name out there. And then it wound up being produced. But in any event, the first scene was a helicopter landing on the roof of like a downtown, you know, like a, a, a big building in New York. And I thought this is so cool and dramatic. And the CEO gets off, and the police are waiting. And so I write this script and I give it to the you know executive producer of the show, and, and he calls me to back down to the studio, and I was excited and we had lunch. And the first thing he said to me is. Craig, television shows have budgets. Does it strike you that we're going to spend all of our money on this very first scene? I thought, oh, God, that's right. So you do you do have to be really conscious of what scenes cost and, and are they filmable? Can actor, you know, could you put actors in that position? Blah, blah, blah. In any event, David, you're staring at it. That's the first scene from the first episode of television I wrote. My name happened to appear over it. And the executive producer put the helicopter in. <laughs> so... It was uh, it was a kind of a sweet a sweet gesture on his part, uh, but yeah, we have to be extraordinarily budget conscious. And on some shows like The Good Wife, we really like to spend a lot of um, a lot of money making sure that the, the quality is there. But sometimes the quality is in is in the actors that you get, or sometimes the quality is in you know how nice your standing sets, the sets that you're shooting on every day look. So it's you know it's hard to have helicopters, it's hard to have explosions. All that stuff comes from another part of the budget. What makes someone like you a good TV writer? When you're hiring somebody, what are the qualities that you look for? Usually writers are pegged as great writers, someone who can really get it on the page, or writers who are what's called good in the room. And that means that they are people who have a lot of ideas, who are really vocal about their ideas, um, but are able to work well with other writers. Because it's, re- it's, it's really an interesting process when you're sitting around a table with this group of six or eight people, or however many it is. I mean, you're talking about 10 or 12 or sometimes 14 hours a day, every day of the week for 10 and a half months a year. That takes a certain skill set to not sort of tear each other's faces off um, and to maintain respect for other people's ideas and to, you know, to sort of 
understand sometimes you gotta you just gotta talk about other stuff for a little bit and let off steam. But the ability to sort of function well in a writer's room and generate a lot of ideas is a really prized skill, um, and that's something that. I think people don't often realize that people feel like it's just about what you can put on the page. And it's really not, you know, that the, 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 those are two separate skills. Ideally a writer has both. I personally feel like it's, it's, it's more important to be able to write because if someone, you know, doesn't, is not great at structure or is not great at dialogue or is not great at the writing part of it, it leaves a lot of work for, you know, the executive producers. And there's so many other parts of your job that that's, that, that can be challenging. Um, Every show I've ever worked on, both when I was interviewing and then when I was doing the interviewing, will say, we have a, a no assholes policy, which is absurd, right? Because who has an assholes policy? I guess there are there, there are some places to do where they say, look, we just want, you know, these seven unbelievable writers and we don't care they get along. But shows like that don't work. I mean, there, there are sort of out, out there, you know, these shows where you've, you've heard like, wow, that is a horrible room. People say unbelievable things to each other, really demeaning or really cruel or really arrogant. And that's a horrible way to, to, you know, to spend, to spend your time. Cause it's a really intense process. For the most part, I think staffs work well when there is diversity, because if you hire people who are just like you, you're going to get ideas that you would have had. So you want people – I really think you want people of varying ages. There's a you know, whole sort of issue of ageism in Hollywood. But um, I think you want older writers and younger writers. You want people who um, – especially in drama, I think who have, who have lived a life before they've come to do it. You know, if you get someone who's 24 years old and straight out of college, they may be a fantastic writer, but their life experience is not something that, that, that they've had a chance to, you know, sort of build up. So they're not really bringing that to bear. It's, it's, not, it's not that helpful to the room. You were a journalist in earlier life and you come out of politics. And what's the process of not being married to fact? How, did you, how do you break yourself as a writer from being married to fact and being able to play it depends on the kind of show you're working on. I don't think you can responsibly break yourself from from fact. On um, The Good Wife, which is a law show, you have a little bit more room to sort of make things dramatic. But again, we do we do strive for for realism. I think it makes the show better. Like law shows for you know for a long time would have a partner walk in and plop something down on you know associate's desk and say Supreme Court argument tomorrow, do it, which is obviously right about as you know unrealistic as possible. And we try not to do that. We try not to fudge the timelines and we try to make things as realistic as possible. And sometimes it's miserable. I mean, you really put yourself in a corner, but if you can write your way out of the corner, I think it's it's, it's to the benefit of the show. These are um, your show is not exactly procedural, but it's patterned. I mean, you say you have A, B, C, D, you have a case, you have a st- stable set of characters. You're not writing a new pilot every week. It's a, it's very fixed. So how do you not get into a rut with that? It depends on where the show is going. So, for instance. Uh, the Good Wife started out, I think, as, as a more more of a procedural drama, right? Which is case of the week comes in the door, and personal stories kind of wrap around that. As the show has evolved and become, I think, more complicated, we probably do cases less and focus more on our characters. So it's become, you know, slightly more serialized, soapy. Would maybe, maybe it's a pejorative term, but it's changed in, in that regard. And the the less you're doing case of the week, and the more you're, you know. You're sort of layering your characters. It's not really hard to avoid a rut. There are certain things. I mean, you have you know you only have the characters you have. You can introduce guest stars. You can bring people in. But people have a good TV intuition. Like you know, when when someone comes on screen, they either look like someone you recognize in their star, and you think, 
oh, that guy's going to figure big. Or they don't, you don't pay attention to them. And so it's tricky as a writer because you feel like, well, if you know <laughs> some very handsome actor from another series who you know has just been canceled comes on, you're thinking, ah, oh, it's going to be a love interest. So we're, it, it, it's tricky to lull people in, into believing something's going to happen and then surprise them. Because you always want your show to be, to some extent, unexpected. And people can only sleep with the number of people that they have, and people can only have the number of affairs that they, you know, that they can have. Um, and there only are the vices that there are. So people drink or they take drugs. So um, it, it can be a challenge to keep it fresh, especially with the just the sheer volume of stuff that's on TV. But that's that's what makes it fun. That's one of those corners that you got to write yourself out of. How do you keep it fresh? I mean, mentally, how do you do that? Like, what's the process that you go through to make sure that it doesn't feel like something you've done 20 times before? That that goes back to the idea of people who are good in the room, people who have life experience. Writers get a hiatus, like... Sometimes it feels like, well, it's just it's just relief, right? It's just, uh, you know, I'm not sitting across from those people. So I had four or six weeks off, um, and it was just I didn't have to work. But it's not really that. It's generally people will go off and do something, and they'll do something interesting, or they'll read something interesting, and they'll bring it back into the room. You know, people go off and travel, and they, you know, break up, or they get married, or they have kids, or things happen. And it's it's this ability to sort of take – an interesting little detail from your life or from someone's life that you know and spin that into something bigger that's really kind of the the prized skill for a writer. That's really being, you know, what, what people call being good in a room. And that's why I do think it's important. You're not always talking just about your show. Sometimes we'll talk for 20 minutes or 40 minutes or an hour about something totally different, you know, that's bugging us or that's in the news or that we've read. And those discussions sometimes will spawn a really interesting idea that we realize, oh, God, now we've stumbled onto it. Do you ever deal with the actors? Yes. I mean, on, on, on private practice, I spent a, a lot of time with the actors because I moved our writing offices onto the lot where the show was shooting. And so the traffic in and out of the office of actors was pretty heavy. So that was a lot of my day. On um, The Good Wife, it's in New York. It's just it's it's much less frequent. Sometimes there there's a phone call. You know, from actors who have a question about something, but it's also we're, we're in season six and we have a super professional group of actors, and there's just the, the the issues have fallen away. In the first you know season or two of a show, there's a lot of work with the actors trying to help them understand what your vision is, them trying to tell you what their vision is. Uh, ideally, that mellows. If there's a if the actor wants something and the writer wants something, who trumps? Theoretically, the showrunner. Actors have a tremendous amount of power. You know, a, a powerful actor sometimes will, you know, has, has more sort of juice than a showrunner does with a studio or with a network. Ideally, you, you resolve these problems. You know, you, you're the showrunner and the actors are, are really on the same page. You know, you, you may fight, but you, you know, you, you get to a point where it's acceptable to both. But I've certainly seen situations where an actor will say, I, I will not do that. And the showrunner will say, No, you are going to do that. And then it goes to the studio or sometimes it goes, it goes to the network. That does not look good for the show. It's 50-50 who, ha- who has the most power, but it is, it's not always the showrunner. Are writers and actors different species or different tribes of the same species? I think different tribes of the same, uh, of the same species in the sense that you know, you're both interested in doing something creative. You both you know, live a lot of your life in the world of make-believe. I think you just come at it you know, different ways. And I think writers and actors don't always understand each other all that well. 
Um, I think sometimes writers don't understand how hard it is to be an actor and how vulnerable you are. And I think actors sometimes don't understand how writers are like that because, you know, to, to an actor, it's, you know, writers in a hole somewhere and they write something, they send it to set and they're never out there performing. No one's looking at them. There's no expectation. They sort of do their work behind the scenes, but that's not what it feels like when you're a writer. I mean, when, especially when you're a young writer and you're on set and they're, you know, rehearsing the scene that you wrote and someone goes, ugh, this is terrible. It is like a hot knife into your heart. I mean, there's a hundred people who are looking at you and you feel incredibly exposed. I don't think most actors mean to do that. Sometimes they do, but most of them don't mean to do that. But that's different. Whereas it, it's the same thing. If you're a young actor and you're sitting on set in your chair and you've got you know your, your soda next to you and you're excited watching someone do that and you look down at your phone while an actor is doing a scene – Sometimes they'll think, like, that's incredibly disrespectful. I cannot believe I'm working here and I'm the one who's vulnerable. So, you know, actors will say, make all your writers take an acting class just so they know what it's like to be out there. So I would say different tribes, but tribes that do not have a a fantastic understanding of what each other does. What are the most frustrating things that you deal with day to day besides, like, not a lunch that you want? There's nothing more frustrating than a lunch I don't want. There are a lot of specific frustrations depending on what what show you're on so sometimes there are actors who you know who who either this doesn't happen to be a a problem on on the current show that i have but i've certainly worked on shows where it is where you know actors come unprepared or actors really fight the material because they want something different i'm interrupting you what does it mean for an actor to come unprepared it can mean actors who don't know their lines which is pretty rare but it does happen Again, not on my current show, but on other shows I've worked on, there are actors who you know who come to set, you know, drunk or high, and or there are actors who just fight the material, who don't want to be there, and that can really be challenging because you know production, physical production of a show, just got to click along. Um, it's expensive and it's hard and it's time consuming, and you, you can't really you know sort of set it down. I mean, remember when I became a showrunner? One of the first things I had to had to do was go talk an actor out of their trailer, and nothing prepares you for that. You know, this is a person who's incredibly highly paid and incredibly famous. No one to do their job, and it's like there's there's no other job in the world, or maybe there is, but I am not familiar with it, where where people would just say, "Not doing it." And you got to go in there and, you know, flatter them and coax them and, you know, figure out what's, what, you know, what's wrong. You know, same thing, writers who are not giving it their all. You know, sometimes people are, are either distracted or uninterested or writer's room problems. Writer's room problems can be devastating. I've, I've certainly worked in a room with people with, you know, one writer hates another writer, absolutely hates them, doesn't respect them, thinks they, you know, have it out for them and are trying to embarrass them or had a fling that didn't work out. I mean, imagine a really, really uncomfortable thing where two people decide, like, oh, we're, you know, we're this intensity, we're going to have a relationship, and then the relationship doesn't work out, and they're still forced to spend, like, 10 or 12 hours a day sitting next to each other with all these other people who are looking at them, most of whom know about the affair. It's, it's disastrous. How do you enforce the code of secrecy that I'm sure you need to ensure the show people aren't leaking plot points and things like that? Because you guys had a great secret this year which no one knew about, which dropped. And how do you make sure that it doesn't get out? That was an interesting one. You're referring to, to the good wife and one, one of the characters, Will Gardner, you know, uh, be, being shot to death in court. And that, that was a real achievement. I think everyone w- was concerned about it. Generally, the people who know about what's going on are the writers. Writers 
almost never leak in my in my experience it's it's so self-defeating right i mean it's we work so hard on this stuff there'd be no reason for us to put it out there um i think actors feel the same way and the crews are really professional so we don't we don't generally have those kinds of problems and also it's rare that you have such a major event that anyone would really consider it newsworthy i mean it was different with with the death of this character because he's a major major character in the show it was a huge moment Nobody wanted a promo. We wanted it to sort of happen like, unfortunately, things happen in real life. And so that that was quite a thing. Um, I mean, watermarking scripts so that there are no scripts floating around. And if, you know, if something got out, you know, we'd, we'd be able to track it to where it came from. Um, limiting the distribution. Talking to uh, the people who are involved in the production of the show, including guest actors or background actors who were there. And just trying to impress upon them, look, this is something really big and really interesting we're trying to do. It's for the good of the show. We're proud to have you as part of the show. Please, please keep our secret. And miraculously, for like three months, everybody did. How do you deal with people who are in your industry but don't watch your show? I never take it personally because I don't watch most other people's shows. <laughs> I have very dear friends with very successful shows, and they're either just not my thing or I don't, I don't have time. So I, ne- I never take it personally. Some people do. Some people feel like, you know, it, it, it's, you know, it's terrible. But I think, you know, in people, for people who work in the industry, the expectation is you've seen everything at least once and you have a kind of a general idea of what's going on. I mean, most people, even if they didn't watch The Good Wife, knew that this character had died. And, I, and that's perfectly fine. I think you have somewhat of an obligation as the member of this particular tribe to have a general sense of what's out there. But as for specific knowledge, I mean, it's, it, it's too big a time suck for, you know, for people to, uh, for people to go too, too deep. Thanks for listening to this episode of working on the next show. I'm going to talk to Eddie Rankin, an organic farmer who grows some of the best apples and peaches in America.